present this big picture of the idea they're trying to teach. This is the same way we find in James' writing. He tends to hit on a few key ideas over and over and over again. And the way that he does it from kind of hits it from different angles helps us to understand it more fully. So, before we, as we jump into this, I have to kind of address what's the elephant in the room before we study anything else with this. This passage I read to you is a little bit, has been a little bit of a problem for preachers and teachers of the word for the last 2,000 years or so. Basically, this is generally one of the more problematic passages to address because of a specific reason. It seems to go in exact contradiction to the things that the Apostle Paul wrote. So let me explain that to you. Let me show you. James writes this statement about justification. Justification is literally being declared right. And we tend to use that word when we talk about being declared in the right before God. James says this in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Seems a little strange. You see... Because Paul wrote in Romans this. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So it seems like a contradiction there, right? We have one guy saying, Hold on, hold on, no, no, no. We are declared right with faith and works. And it seems like the other guy is saying, We are declared right with God on faith without works. Well, which one is it? Well, the answer is both. You see, Paul and James are actually responding to two different problems that the early Christians would face, and we still face today. How so? Well, Paul is responding to people who think this, guys. People who think you can be right in God's eyes by merely going through the motions without having your heart be changed at all. Basically, the idea is I can obey the law. That's why he calls it the works of the law. It's like I can keep the rules and I'm going to be on good terms. God's going to be okay with me. This is why he mentions it that way. The idea is if you don't steal, you don't kill, you keep kosher, whatever, God will declare you righteous. And Paul's point is that if you could be made right in God's eyes just by your own obedience and your own good deeds, then Jesus died for nothing. Because you would be able to earn eternal life all on your own. That's what Paul's addressing. What's James addressing? Well, James is responding to people who think you can offer up lip, ser- lip service faith and expect that to be what saves your soul. In other words, if Paul thinks you can just go through the motions, James, or Paul is addressing people who think you can just go through the motions, James is addressing people who think that you can just say the right words and it'll be okay. This is a concept we, see, we still see very frequently. There are those who would think that faith is basically like voting. And if you cast your vote for Jesus, then one day when Jesus returns, he will see that you voted for him over Muhammad or Buddha, and he'll be like, well, great guess. You chose correctly in the Savior election. Uh, come into my kingdom. Sure, maybe your life is, uh, you've lived a horrible, godless life that shows no evidence that you actually are one of my followers, but hey, it's cool. That's what James is responding to. He says, no way. That's not the case with the Bible. See, the Bible teaches that when God saves a person from their sins, he doesn't just leave them to wallow in their sins for the rest of their lives. Instead, as we said during our first week, God not only saves souls, But he changes people from the inside out as well. 
This is a process that Christians have often referred to as sanctification, being made holy. So, the resolution between these two positions is, uh, is best described by a famous phrase that scholars aren't really sure who said it first. Some think Martin Luther said it first. Someone thinks they got it from someone else. It goes like this. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You get the idea there? We are saved by faith alone. The basis by which I can come before God and be seen as right before God is by trusting in what Jesus has done on my behalf. However, that faith that is in Jesus also is active and actually changes us. God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new, de- new desires. We are, when you come to Jesus, the Bible says it's like new birth. You've been born again. This is where this terminology comes from. We're given a new life, so to speak. And so what he means is that true saving faith shows itself in a changed life, which is the point we are making today. So the thrust of James' argument, the big point that James is getting at, can best be summarized in chapter 1, verse 22, when he, tells you the, when he writes this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. See, what he's doing there is James juxtaposes true saving faith with false faith by pointing out what true faith, uh, that true faith actually make, does something to a person. It actually changes them. So what I want to do this morning is do just what James does. I want to point out to you what true faith looks like and what true faith doesn't look like or what false faith looks like what are the benefits of true faith what are the dangers of false faith and if i've gotten that through to you this morning i think we'll all be better off for it so let's start with the negative because i'm a daunting pessimist if i'm honest with you guys (laughs) what are the dangers of false faith well first we see that the danger of being unchanged by the gospel the message of jesus is that you have a false confidence in life In chapter 1, verse 23 through 24, James writes, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. Now, guys, I'm going to apologize for this because I'm going to do this probably every couple of weeks uh, as, as the pastor here. When I think of this verse... The first image that comes to my mind, if I'm honest with you, is a gag from The Simpsons. And it goes like this. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's great. Look it up. It's a funny joke. Homer's sitting there in the mirror, and he's wearing a towel, and Marge asks him across the room, do you find that you have delusions? And he goes, not at all. And he looks like Homer Simpson looks. He's built like Homer Simpson looks. And then he shows himself looking at himself in the mirror, and he's all buff. And he starts making his pecs dance, and he starts singing along with as they do this. And the idea is, he thinks he's doing all right. He thinks he's looking great. But the reality is far from that. And that's what James is saying here. That's James's analogy. He's saying, basically, you don't, a person whose life isn't changed by the gospel doesn't even really know what they look like. What this also tells us is that you can get a pretty accurate look at your real beliefs at what you truly believe in life by looking at your lifestyle. These are the things we say, there are things we say we believe, and then there's things we actually believe. So if we say we believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but are unwilling to do anything 
he told us to do. What I want to suggest to you this morning is, guys, the problem is we don't really believe. We just say we do. James claims that false faith distorts our understanding of ourselves. But another danger we face by this is is not only that we don't have a, a good, accurate picture of ourselves and what we are like, but we, the, another danger we face is that the gospel itself, our faith, is made useless. He says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if anyone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In chapter, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James uses words like, worthless, useless. He even goes so far as to call it demonic, the idea there. He says, even the demons believe this stuff. Even the demons will say God's one. That doesn't do them any good. So what good is a faith that doesn't change you? It's no good to you, nor is it any good to anyone else who knows you. Because it doesn't make you a kinder, more generous person, a better husband, a better father, any of those things. James puts out the idea, he, he flat out says it, look, if that's all your faith is, is saying that you believe, what good is it? What I want you to notice is that this is not the way faith is supposed to work. Clearly, this is an abnormality, a twisted form of what real faith is supposed to be. James expects faith to actually change people. And so when we go out here and we gather regularly and we sit under the teaching of the word, and we, and we confess our sins, and we take the Lord's Supper, and we pray for one another, and we study the Bible, and we go out and we try to serve people. We actually expect this work, this word that we preach, to work and to change us. So, where James expects faith to actually change people as well, to be of value and have tangible results to it. There should be evidence, fruit to show for it, as the Bible calls it. So where my mind goes when I think like this is that if this stuff we call Christian faith actually works, why don't we act or expect it to change people? See, I feel like sometimes I myself as, as a teacher, preacher of the word, I actually worry about putting those kind of uh, restrictions on it. And saying it actually is going to make you a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better son or daughter or anything. I sometimes str- worry if I'm promising too much in it. And I ask myself, why is that? Why does my heart go to that? And if I'm honest with you and honest about myself, it's because I fear criticism when I fall short of that. To be honest with you guys, once I say believing Jesus is actually supposed to make you a better person, it's actually supposed to change you, it means I have instantly held myself up to a higher standard. And once we do that, that's uncomfortable. To be honest with you, sometimes we fear criticism. Sometimes we fear the the fact that saying that, People are very, the people closest to us especially, are very aware of our own faults and failings. I believe the end result of this is that often, we as pastors have often sold people short of what God can do in their lives. What God can do in your life. Guys, if we actually believe this book, 
it demands that we expect it to actually change us from the inside out. Does that mean you'll be perfect? No. But consider this. Let's say you had a friend who wanted to do an aggressive diet and exercise plan. And they wanted to lose 100 pounds this year. They kept to it, sort of. Worked out sometimes. Maybe broke the diet fairly regularly. And at the end of the year, they were down only 85 pounds. Would you then reason from that, man, this diet's a sham. Clearly, it didn't work for you. No. What you would do is you would recognize that it did work. They had just followed it imperfectly. Not only that you did your, that, your friend might tell you, if they're honest with you, that in light of how often they actually broke their diet, they're pretty amazed that, it, that they lost as much weight as they did, that they got into as good a shape as they did. You can see where I'm going with this. We all follow God imperfectly. But that's not the Bible's fault. But even if we do follow imperfect as we do, we can still see results. See, the goal of this life is to get better at, to keep at it and get better as we go along without giving up when we fall short. As a matter of fact, that's why we confess our sins every week. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. None of us has done it perfectly. None of, us has, uh, none of us has gotten through the week without sin, without failing, without faults. Okay, that's the dangers of false faith. What are the benefits of true faith? What does James have to say about that? Well, what we see here is that what we're taught is that the benefit of true faith is that it offers evidence to our salvation. Chapter 2, verse 18, James says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Who can see this kind of faith? True faith. The answer is everyone. Can you hear the confidence in that statement? I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James isn't just bragging here. He's not trying to show off what an awesome dude he sees himself as. What he's saying is this. If you doubt that I believe this Jesus... On all this stuff we talk about, I have evidence to go along with it. See, the presence of proof gives him confidence to share it. What's the value of the proof? It forces people to address it. Guys, that's what I want us to understand. What's the value of faith and works working together? It adds, it adds evidence that people have to figure out. They have to figure out what to do with you, so to speak. A person who says Jesus saves... And their life shows no evidence of it is really easy to ignore. It's just like the guy who says, I'm on this new diet and never loses weight or gets in better shape. You go, okay, you saved that, that diet's for you. I think I'll, I'll look elsewhere. But the idea, but when something actually works, it's hard to ignore, frankly. When you dis, when we present evidence in front of someone, it makes the claim harder to dismiss. And the same thing can be said of the message of Jesus. The claim that Jesus alone can save people coupled with a life of faith showing itself in good deeds is a powerful argument. This also assumes that we have to be, of course, vocal about our faith, but that's next week's lesson, so I don't want to jump ahead of that. But what does true faith look like? Well, thankfully, James paints a picture for us. Chapter 1, verse 27, he gives us an example. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. 
to to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Religion. Why would he say religion? That's a word that isn't always used in a positive light these days. Why would James go with that? Well, what religion refers to is a devotion, usually to a higher power. The Latin word that we get our word religion, religio, literally means to bind. And so a religion is something we are bound to. And in this case, in the Christian faith, true religion, we are bound to trust and obey the God of the Bible. So James gives three examples of what that pure religion actually looks like. Two of which he lumps together. Visiting orphans and widows in their afflictions. What do those two things have in common? Well, what I want to suggest is they both involve caring for those who have experienced loss of those who would naturally care for them. In this day and age, widows and orphans lack a support system, we might say. Orphans lack parents. Widows, uh, widows lack a husband. And so what he says there is that part what God sees as pure and untainted uh, uh, religion... What God sees as true faith is finding those people who no one else is looking out for and caring for them. This word visitation has more to do. It's not just showing up and saying hi, though it's part of that. It literally means it's elsewhere used in the Bible to refer to caring for people, actually doing something to show care for them. So true faith isn't just good deeds, however. It's not just how you treat someone else, though it is that. It's also seen in our personal change as well. Therefore, pure religion, according to James, is also to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does that mean? Well, thankfully, like I said, James is prone to bring up the same concept over and over and over again. So he tells us and he gives us, he paints a picture for us. What does it look like? Well, if you look at all the examples, I would suggest keeping oneself untainted from the world or unstained from the world looks like what we would call self-control. Let me give you some examples. Chapter 1, verse 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to speak here, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, that means rein in his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You get what he's saying there? Real faith gives us strength to control ourselves. What's helpful is that the description here is that these outbursts are viewed like a wild animal inside of us that has to be trained and taught. It's like a horse that has to be broken and brought in. And I love the reason James gives us for this too. Let me repeat it. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, you will never get the right results if you don't learn to control your emotions and your words. You will never get the results God wants for your life in that. And as a guy who can be short-tempered at times, that hits home. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Don't get me wrong. Does it mean all anger is bad? No, not at all. But that's getting mad about the things that God gets mad at too. Not the things that just offend our own personal preferences. That's more of a slow anger building process, not flying off the handle. If he says that by doing this, we can never accomplish the, by being quick to anger, 
will never accomplish the righteousness of God, that suggests something to us about God. It suggests that God's righteous anger is a slow process. And so should ours be as well. So what's the result of all this? Of a faith with evidence? What's the value? What's the goal? Well, the result is shown in personal change and good works. And as a result, you become someone whose message is hard to ignore. There's an old word for it that doesn't get used as much these days. Gravitas. Literally, it's the word, gravitas is the word that is an ancient word that philosophers used to speak of a lot. It's where we get our word gravity from. A person with gravitas demands your attention. You ever know someone like that? Who walks into like a, who walks into a room? Maybe your dad was a guy like that, and like you could mess around, play around with other people, and not listen. And dad comes into the room, and instantly, like you straighten up your back, and you're like, "Oh, dad's home. Gonna stop doing that now." That's the idea of gravitas. It's the the idea is that the person's president, the presence re, re, requires that you take their words seriously. Without having to tell them, without them having to tell you that. That's what the Bible wants to produce in you. They want you to, they want to, the Bible wants you to be men and women who have a weight to them. Something about, one of the things about uh, gravity is not only does it weigh us down, but it also pulls people in. And that's what the Bible says, that's what the, a good description of what happens when faith and works are combined in our life. What happens is we become, you become people that other people are drawn to. And when you tell people about the things that matter most to you, the things that concern you, they take you seriously because they understand that in your life. That's what we become as we allow God to change us. Our position feels weightier because there is an undeniable impact that it has on our lives and people are either repelled by it or they're drawn to it. And those that are drawn to it tend to find life in Jesus as well. So as we close out, let me just remind you that all this that we talk about here, faith and works, is the result of a true saving faith in Jesus, and it is evidence that God is the one at work in our lives. Any, that means any credit for our own growth and maturity any, grow, any, any development and change we see in our lives as, as believers and followers of Jesus, the credit always needs to go to God and God alone. It's his power at work inside of you. It's him changing you from the inside out. And what this does, guys, is this leads us to the time where we take the Lord's Supper each week. As we do this, when we come to this table and we take this bread, we take this juice what we are doing here is we are laying down all our accomplishments and saying everything I have is because of God, what God has done for me. And first and foremost, what God has done for me in Jesus. See, one of the interesting things about coming to the table and taking the bread and the juice is that it's a symbol of our faith in Jesus and it's also a confession of our need for Jesus. I need God's power at work in my life. You need God's power at work in your life right now as much as the day you first believe. 
And if you're not a person who's come to faith in Jesus yet, if you're just trying to figure this stuff out, guys, we're so thankful that you're here this morning. We encourage you to come back. We meet here every Sunday at 10 a.m. I encourage you, if you want to have more conversations about this, you can fill out an info card, drop it off there. I'll call you. I'll email you, whatever it is. We want to stay connected. We want you to be a part of our body. We want you to, be a, to find life in Jesus. But I also want to caution you. If you're not ready for that, if you're not ready to make that profession of faith, if you're not ready to give your life to Jesus, just keep coming back. With, uh, hold back from taking the Lord's Supper today. It's okay. We love you. There's no pressure. And so as we do this, we, as I said, we give all all glory to God. This can be best summarized, I think, in in the words from an old song. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's what we do here. All glory to God. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you do not leave us as we are, but you change us. God, that as we follow you, we have confidence and faith that a year from now, we will not be the same person we were. And imagine what you can do with a lifetime. God, we confess to you that we could never be good enough to earn your favor. But by your love and your mercy, we can have a relationship with you. And we can live a life that points out and points to the power of the gospel of Jesus. God, help us to be just that. Help our lives to be an example, to be a proof, evidence, which is hard to ignore. That when people ask, what's different about you? Why are you like this? We can say... It's because of what God has done for me in sending Jesus. And God, as we take the Lord's Supper this week, let us lay all our accomplishments down. Let us pursue love and good deeds because that's the life you've called us to. Because that's the life where we will experience your joy. Life in the fullest. Life the way it was meant to be lived. And so, God, be honored as we do that together. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, I want to encourage you as Robin sings the song to come up and take the elements, to take the bread and the cup, and to head back and sing the song together.